United and American are potentially clearing the way for their rivals at O'Hare. And I'll talk with Cranes reporter Steve Daniels about a possibly worrying sign about how inflation is hitting credit consumers. People whose, whose credit is sort of at the lower end of the prime scale or the upper end of the subprime scale, I think there's probably, uh, given the inflationary stuff that we've seen, quite a few of those who are using their card just to get through the month. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, November 30th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction and retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. With inflation imposing financial stress on more U.S. households and recession predictions growing louder, credit card balances jumped in the third quarter of 2022, making for the largest year-over-year increase in quite a while. I'm joined now by Cranes reporter Steve Daniels. So, Steve, you you follow consumer debt very closely, particularly keeping an eye on Discover, which is based locally. What are you seeing here lately? Yeah, I think what jumps out the most is the growth rate. And it's not just Discover. It's every credit card company or almost every credit card company. The growth rate in the, in the loans on their books. So there are two different kinds of credit card customers. One is the customer who uses the card to pay for things and then pays the card off entirely after the grace period is over. And the other one is the one that keeps a balance borrowing at whatever the rate is that the card charges, which typically these days is in the mid-teens. So what's happening is that there's a lot more loans on the books of these credit card companies uh, than was the case even a year ago. We're talking 20% growth year over year for Discover. For American Express, it's even more. For uh, Capital One, it's even higher than that. And what it's showing is that consumers are feeling the need to put more uh, more debt on their cards. Now, for what purpose? That's an important question, and we can get into that. Are you able to get a sense of, of when you're looking at that growth rate of how much of that is just higher balances and how much of that might veer into like delinquencies and, and charge offs? Yeah, the uh, the charge offs and delinquencies, that rate is creeping up. They're not at alarming rates. And the uh, industry uses a term called normalization, which is kind of a euphemism, but it means that the industry is starting to see the normal sorts of defaults from their card customers. Coming out of the pandemic, those rates were far lower than normal, mainly because you know so many people were flush with cash from various government assistance programs, and probably more importantly, you know the uh, moratorium on paying your rent, things like that, that you know enabled people that might have uh, skipped a payment or whatever on their cards to keep current. So, you know what what I think we're seeing is a 
increase, finally a notable increase in those rates, but certainly not at some level that would alarm anybody right now. And you've noted in reporting that Discover is historically a little bit more conservative of a lender. As we see this growth rate happen, are lending standards kind of tightening up with that? Yeah, Discover says they very modestly are tightening up standards. This was in their earnings call, quarterly earnings call that took place in late October. You know, exactly how they didn't go into detail, but yeah, it's who's who's going to qualify for a card, essentially, is what lending standards mean. You know, they'd seen a lot of new customers. Uh, their growth rate's been Im- impressive over the last couple of years. And, you know, typically, how do you add customers? You you entice them by offering to bring over their current credit card debt at no interest from whatever their card is. And then eventually, you, you start charging interest on that after a while. So, you know, that's that's the time-honored way that, that card companies have done this, and, and they've been doing that. I think what they'd indicated was that they, they weren't being quite as aggressive with those offers. But these are these are pretty modest steps, especially in light of some of the predictions of recession and layoffs, joblessness, et cetera, the Fed's interest rate increases and and those sorts of things. And we have seen some layoffs in some particular industries, technology first and foremost. So what's interesting about this moment, I think, is that these card companies are are caught in a, a situation where you have to make a bet. Your bet is, from the point of view of a discoverer, we don't want to miss out on bringing in good business. So if you really tap the brakes early in anticipation of, of, a, of an economic problem that's you know, significant, then, uh, then you're, the risk-reward is you, you're, you risk missing out on that business that's profitable. That's the way they make money. They make money on people using their cards and paying interest on them. Other card companies, City Chase, typically the, the kinds of customer. I mean, they do that too. But the kind of customer that they are uh, going after is wealthier, a customer who's going to pay the balance off every month, but is using the card a lot for big purchases. And you know, the card companies make money every time somebody buys something too, because the merchant is paying a percentage of that to them. So just there's different business strategies here and discovers is predicated on people using the card as a borrowing tool. Their their risk reward is do we miss out on that? Or do we worry that our losses are going to be worse once the once, you know, the blank hits the fan and uh, because we added all this debt right into the teeth of this. So that's you know that's kind of the, the interesting decision and these guys have been doing this for a long time, so they've seen cycles and 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 they they know uh, how to prepare. But every every recession is different. There's always some tweak. There's always something unanticipated. So that's what makes this this moment interesting, I think. And do you have a sense of what accounts for the uptick in balances? Is it consumer spending? Is it more household necessities? What what's making that up? Yeah, that's a key question. So. Again, in their earnings call, Discover was saying, at least for their customers, it was more the purchases on travel and consumer durables had slowed or declined. It wasn't so much that you know that people were using the card to you know buy groceries or whatever. 
I think, though, you know, looking at that more broadly, I think that there is a key question there. Are, are there more consumers? And this, this probably gets into the, the issue of, you know, you know what, where, in the wealth, where in the wealth strata are you? Are you middle income? Are you, what, are you uh, affluent? Are you wealthy? You know, for the middle income and lower affluent um, uh, and, and people whose, whose credit is sort of at the lower end of the prime scale or the upper end of the subprime scale, I think there's probably, uh, given the inflationary stuff that we've seen, quite a few of those who are using their card just to get through the month, um, you know, to, to, to buy groceries. Obviously, the, the paying for gas is, uh, is another one that I think has just been, you know, consistently high now for a while. Um, but when you do start getting into that, where people are using their card just to get through the month, the last few days of the month or whatever, um, that's when you start to have a little bit of concern, I think, about uh, this spike in loan growth for these card companies. You know, how much of that spike in loan growth is people um, doing things that they can very easily handle, and how much of it is, you know, somebody has a, a car repair or a health cost or obviously loses their job that debt is going to go bad sort of immediately. So it seems like a bit of a, a kind of a limbo period, right, um, for, for credit card companies. What does that translate to uh, on the markets? You mean in terms of their stock price? Yeah. I mean, do we see fluctuation or does it? how do shareholders react to that? Well, I think shareholders by and large are very skittish about consumer lenders who are lending to the lower end, lower middle class, middle class customers. So Discover is solidly prime. They, they really don't dip down into the lower echelons. And certainly they don't have any need to right now because of the growth that they're experiencing. That's typically when you do is when your growth stagnates. And so you maybe you loosen things up a little bit to, uh, to attract a, a kind of customer that otherwise you wouldn't feel super comfortable lending to. Um, but like Capital One, which is a bigger card company than Discover, um, and, uh, and also is comfortable and has been con consistently over the years, um, issuing cards to subprime uh, borrowers, I, albeit those at the upper end of that subprime, um, spectrum, their stock's down 30% this year. Discover's is down 6%. I mean, <laughs> I think that gives you some sense as to what, uh, how investors perceive risk, and that, and that may be uh, an overreaction on the Capital One side, and maybe an underreaction on the Discover side. But we don't we won't know that answer obviously until if and until you know if and when we get into a real recession where, where we see job losses, and and the job losses is always the the issue for card companies. I mean that's when. They have problems when they're when they're when their customers lose their jobs. It's the number one by far uh, issue that that correlates to to loan losses. So, you know, we they went through it in the Great Recession. Discover did great, by the way, performed really well uh, through the Great Recession, better than a lot of other card companies did. Um, and uh, so, so I think that's another thing that investors 
look at is this is a, a track record. A com- this company has a track record of navigating these things really well. Um, and, uh, you know, their CEO, who uh, Roger Hochschild, has been at Discover for years and years and years. He became CEO a few years ago, but he's been at the company for uh, 15, 20 years. So that, that, I'm sure, gives some comfort. Sure. What strategies did Discover use at the time to, to come out so far ahead and during the Great Recession? A lot of it is predicated on what you do right before the recession. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you're lending aggressively right before the recession hits, your losses are going to be higher. And Discover was not doing that uh, into in, in, you know, immediately preceding the recession. You know, then it comes down to, you know, working out things as best you can with your borrowers and trying to come up with payment plans and the like. But I think the lion's share of, of what explains whether you do okay in those sorts of situations is what you do right before. And that's why this moment is interesting. Because if we are seeing this kind of growth, you know, and then we're going to really hit the skids next year, then that's going to raise some questions. Now, uh, now Discover is, like I said, no different than anybody else. In fact, maybe slightly, the growth is slightly less impressive, but it's still, it's, all, it's really all the same for all of these players. So yeah, it might raise a few questions. Yeah, with so many things right now, I feel like it's a, it's a wait and see, yet another wait and see kind of deal. A topic that we will be revisiting again soon, I'm sure. In the meantime, thanks so much, Steve. Always a pleasure. Yep, thanks. Coming up, the Chicago area returns to a medium COVID risk. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is working to help communities facing an elevated need right now. Decades high inflation is making it even harder for our neighbors to afford groceries, and food insecurity is above pre-pandemic levels. Children are at greatest risk with one in four facing hunger. Let's rise to the challenge, Chicago. Your neighbor is hungry. Give what you can to the Greater Chicago Food Depository at chicagosfoodbank.org. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's John Pletz reported that United and American Airlines, the two dominant carriers at O'Hare, are trading small regional jets for larger planes that are simply more profitable to fly. There are fewer small jets flying over O'Hare these days. High fuel prices and rising pay for pilots are causing airlines to rely less on regional jets, which now account for 46% of the flights at O'Hare down from 54% before the pandemic, that amount will continue to drop. It's worth remembering that a massive surge in the number of 50-seat RJs used by American and United once led the FAA to cap the number of flights at O'Hare during peak periods. But these days, airlines such as United are using fewer bigger planes in an effort to improve profits. The result is less crowded airspace, which gives United and American the ability to add new routes It also provides a potential opening for others to expand or enter the market. 
Total flights are down 25% from 2019, but the number of seats has fallen only 18%. O'Hare's on-time performance this year through August is 77.9%, which is better than the national average of 75.8%, according to U.S. Department of Transportation data. For comparison, pre-pandemic, O'Hare trailed the nation average by 5 percentage points. Pletz noted in reporting that the decline in aircraft numbers is unlikely to affect the airport's revenue, which is based on the cumulative weight of aircraft and the total number of passengers using the airport. Fewer, larger aircraft likely will produce the same landing fees and carry the same number of passengers. If there is any shortfall in landing fees, airlines will simply pay more to cover them. Pletz also noted that as airlines switch to bigger aircraft, it means less frequent flights to and from some smaller cities. And fewer flights by the big carriers won't likely free up gates for competitors, but it could enable others to increase their flying at O'Hare from other terminals. Use of regional jets is dropping at large airports nationwide, but the decline is noteworthy at O'Hare, where small planes account for more than 300,000 scheduled flights this year, the most among the 10 busiest airports in the U.S. Regional jets now account for 47% of United's flights, down from 58% in 2019, according to Sirium. Regional jets are 53% of Americans' flights, compared with 59% pre-pandemic. Pletz also reported that the shift marks the decline of a competition that started two decades ago, when United and American flooded the airport with regional jets in an effort to serve as many markets as possible and as frequently as possible. But clogging the skies over O'Hare so badly that it had the worst on-time performance of all U.S. airports. O'Hare has added new runways and reconfigured the airfield since then, and the economics of flights have also changed, accelerated by the pandemic that hit air travel harder than any previous crisis also impacted by a rush of pilot retirements. Pletz further noted in reporting that United plans to retire 200 small 50-seat regional jets by 2026, reducing their use from 33% of flights to 10%. The change at O'Hare will be the most dramatic, dropping from 42% of flights down to just 4%. The strategy called the United Next Plan calls for its overall departures at O'Hare to return to pre-pandemic levels by 2026. Aaron Johnson, a lawyer for Amazon and state government veteran, has been named the state's top cannabis regulator. Johnson is an associate general counsel for Amazon Web Services, but was chief of staff in the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice in the Pritzker administration from 2019 to mid-2021. And previously, she was associate general counsel and chief diversity officer from 2016 to 2018 for then-Governor Bruce Rauner. She replaces Danielle Perry, who left the job as Cannabis Regulation Oversight Officer in May. Johnson comes to the job at a critical time as the Pritzker administration tries to make good on its promise of diversifying the ownership of the marijuana business in Illinois. After two years of delays, the state recently awarded 192 licenses for new dispensaries. So far, two of them have opened. The first of 88 new cultivation companies are also just getting launched. In the role, Johnson must oversee a regulatory setup that involves more than a dozen agencies. The Department of Agriculture oversees growers, while the Department of Financial and Professional Regulation licenses retailers. Other players include the Department of Revenue, State Police, and the Department of Public Health. Critics have called for legislation to create a single agency to regulate the industry. 
After a career spanning more than 50 years, most of it as one of the city council's most influential figures, indicted Alderman Ed Burke of the 14th Ward won't run for re-election as the 5 p.m. Monday deadline to file petition signatures to run in next year's municipal election came and went without an appearance from Burke or someone from his camp. Crane's government reporter Justin Lawrence noted that Burke was re-elected in February of 2019 despite the political shockwave sent off when his offices were raided by FBI agents in November of 2018 and he was charged with a single count of attempted extortion just weeks before Election Day. In May of 2019, Burke was indicted on 19 racketeering and corruption charges, alleging he lured clients to hire his property tax law firm with promises of favorable treatment in the city council. Burke has maintained his innocence. On Monday, hours before the candidate filing deadline, attorneys in the racketeering case against Burke revealed they have 90 video-recorded messages involving the alderman, totaling over 100 hours. That's in addition to 34,000 recorded phone calls. His trial is now set for November of next year, almost five years since the raid on his offices. Burke's wife, former Illinois Supreme Court Chief Judge Ann Burke, announced her own retirement in September. Halu Gutierrez, an aide to Cook County Commissioner Alma Anaya, and Raul Reyes have both filed petitions to run in the 14th Ward. Chicago and the surrounding counties are back to a medium COVID-19 community risk level as of Monday. That according to data from the U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. The statement said that the seesaw of low to medium and back again is due to metrics of new hospitalizations. In Cook County, the levels have wobbled around the threshold between medium and low for the past two weeks. The Chicago Department of Public Health said in a statement that as of November 25th, Chicago had 10.2 new COVID-19 hospital admissions per 100,000 people in a seven-day total period, which is over the goal of under 10 in seven days. Crane's John Aspland noted in reporting that hospitalizations reflect the burden on the whole federally defined health service area, which includes hospitals in Cook, Lake, DuPage, and McHenry counties. CDPH's statement said they're all at medium risk level, while Will and Kane counties remain at low levels. Flu and RSV are also on the rise locally and around the nation, the statement said, straining hospital resources and putting both young children and older adults at higher risk of severe outcomes like hospitalization and death, CDPH said in its statement. The city emphasized that vaccinations are available for both COVID-19 and flu and will help contain the spread of the viruses. And the city of Chicago also continues to operate the program called Protect Chicago at Home. It's free initiative that will bring COVID and flu vaccines to any Chicagoan's home and vaccinate up to 10 people in a single appointment. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Steve Daniels. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.